Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. But we can Exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. Now, uh, for this episode, uh, I went into this film completely blind. Tim had picked out the movie, and uh, we literally just finished watching it. I had no idea what it was until we pressed play, and uh, I was greeted with the film, which is, as you know, Ishtar. So, why did you pick this movie, Tim? I just love this movie. And it's growing up, it was um, a movie I would hear about. And, like, I didn't know anything about what the movie was, what it was about, even that it was a comedy or anything. People would just use this term, Ishtar, as, like, you'd say, like, oh, this is going to be, like, the Hindenburg. Or maybe in recent years, well, this is another 9-11. <laughs> People would be like, oh, we don't want this to turn into another Ishtar. Like when talking right. about movies where the budget's getting out of control and it's just a big disaster that everybody hates. That's the context in which I had heard about this movie as well. Yeah. It was something that if uh, maybe long-term listeners or long long-time listeners uh, may remember, we, we mentioned this, I think, at least a couple times in previous episodes. Probably when we were doing our uh, series of episodes on box office bombs. Um, and initially, when we first decided to do that, which is one thing that we'll always regret that month, <laughs> where we put ourselves eh, through that. I don't regret it. All right, I don't know. Um, it was a rough. It was a rough. I regret the of Oscars weeks. month more. Yeah, we hated ourselves back then. We were masochists. <laughs> um, cinemasochists. Anyway, yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> I bet somebody already has that YouTube channel or podcast. Probably, um, but yeah. I, see, initially, I like the first one we did that month was The Bluebird, which I threw out there, and it was one of those titles that like, I always just would hear, like, historically, you know, talking about, like, bombs and big failures, uh, and another one I was thinking of, like, oh, we could do, like, Ishtar or something, uh, but instead we went more of, like, a scientific route, where we actually looked up exact numbers, and we were, like, these had, like, actual, like, box office bombs, like, the biggest bombs, which led to us watching some movies that were really, really bad instead of just, like, maybe misunderstood in their time, which I was hoping for. Like, something like Skidoo, which I think is kind of underrated. Right, yeah, we were looking... We were trying to find, like, a diamond in the rough there with, with something like Cutthroat Island, <sighs> um, which, you know, I, it, on the surface, looked like it could have been... There could have been something there. It was just rough. But it's just, yeah, there's a whole lot of nothing there. Even though, clearly, I mean, they spent a whole lot of money on it. Which... Having just watched Ishtar, knowing the reputation, I was kind of surprised that, like, it doesn't really feel like that big of a production. Like, you know, clearly, clearly, like, they're on location, they're doing some, like, a little bit of, like, stunty kind of work with, yeah, like, guns not... firing and stuff. But it's not like 
these gigantic set pieces that are over the top or anything like that. Well, the, I mean, I think one of the issues was, like, there's... They didn't go, like, the process way. They're in the desert. And you can tell they're in the desert. And right. you see helicopters coming up over the dunes. And those are real helicopters coming up over real dunes. Right. And uh, even before... The, you know, initially they were like, oh, well, you know, we're in Hollywood. We'll just shoot it out in one of the nearby deserts. Because there's deserts over there in, like, the southwest. Uh, they decided to go to um, Morocco. and like, But they... Even before that, when you've got Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty, like, that's already a lot of money. Yeah, right and this, this was 1987. Yeah. So they were both well-established as, you know, big stars. This is 20 years after Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and Dustin Hoffman had, did he win an Oscar for Tootsie? Or when did Rain Man, Rain Man come out? Rain Man was the following year, 88. Okay, um, okay. He had won for Kramer versus Kramer. Gotcha. Uh, a couple of years before Tootsie. Um, Tootsie was, you know, it was a huge hit. It's a really good movie. He's great in it. Um, and, like, Elaine May uh, helped write it. She, like, people felt that she kind of saved that movie. Because um, she was... You know, she's one of those people, like, we, we talked briefly about, like, Carrie Fisher before, uh, who, you know, she she had a lot of, like, uh, Elaine May had a lot of screenwriting credits, but she was often also one of those people that you would just kind of bring in, like, behind the scenes, like, can you fix this? A script doctor, as they yeah. Um, And she helped out a lot on Tootsie, and the year before that, she helped Warren Beatty out a lot on Reds, which he won his uh, Oscar for Best Director for. Um... And they both felt that they owed her something. And they owed her Ishtar. I guess this is this this is where that came from. Uh, the success of Reds and Tootsie leads us to Ishtar. So I, so I was sort of in the boat, as you were describing earlier, of like knowing about the movie, knowing the reputation, but not knowing anything of what it's about. Yeah, I I only knew that like Dustin Hoffman was in it. I I'd kind of forgotten, or maybe even didn't even know that Warren Beatty was in it. But I knew it was like a Dustin Hoffman thing. Yeah. And that was it. Like I, you know, and I know that it's called Ishtar, <laughs> so I imagine that I I didn't know how that whole element fit into it at all. Um. So starting watching the movie, you know, not going in completely cold. Um. I'm like, oh, okay, it's like the story about these two uh, song, you know, down on their luck songwriters, and it's, and it's, you know, it's like a comedy. You laughed several times. I this is the I mean, fourth overall, time I've seen it, and I laughed several times. Overall, I mean, this, I thought this movie was really, really funny. I think, it's and a good Dustin movie. Hoffman and Warren Beatty are great. Yeah, they're fantastic. Um, this and you know, I can go. We can go into it later, but I mean, it felt like a. Um, very much like a uh, like a Dumb and Dumber would have yeah. been like inspired by Ishtar. <laughs> it felt a lot like Dumb and Dumber to me. Well, their inspiration starting out was um, the Bob Hope and Bing Crosby road movies from the 40s, like Road to Morocco and Road to Singapore and those things. And they were like, oh, we... Well, Elaine May was like, it'd be interesting to do something like that, but like 
now in the 80s in like the middle east situation and everything right <laughs> that had become this whole tumultuous uh yeah and then when dustin hoffman became involved um she was like oh well okay so warren you know the the ladies man who you know the heartbreaker of hollywood yeah well flip- let's have yeah. him be the bob hope guy and then dustin hoffman <laughs> will be like the suave bing crosby guy they kind of switched that and i think that works really well in this yeah absolutely and like warren Beatty's walking around like oh girls don't like me not like you dustin hoffman yeah <laughs> <laughs> like when you walk into a room man i mean it, it, yeah it's uh i mean i could go i could make a list as long as my arm similarities to dumb and dumber yeah i mean that's the movie that i'm obviously i've seen that a bunch of times and like i know that but i mean you know even down to like you know we've got this girl who's sort of in the middle of them and neither of the two guys like knows what the other one is really up to and they have their suspicions about it you know they start to grow apart there's like a suitcase in in the mix there's like there's all instead of a briefcase like in dumb and dumber there's like there's just a whole whole lot of things that uh like weird little details okay you know it's been a long time since i've seen dumb and dumber because i never really liked it um i think dumb and dumber is great i should try watching it like as an adult as a kid i was like this is gross i don't like gross jokes Maybe I'll appreciate it more as an adult than I did as a kid. Or yeah, I agree. I, I mean, and I think like, uh, I mean, and especially from a more modern point of view, which I think like today, comedies are like way grosser than okay. than anything that happens in Dumb and Dumber. All right. I just remember a lot of like. Uh, I mean, there there is toilet a, humor. There is a, there. I mean, there is a quite extended scene uh, that is, I mean, literally toilet humor. Yeah, that's. I think I saw the clip for that before I saw the movie. It was on some like late night show. I think, like, Jeff Daniels was on as a guest or something. And and then I had, like, a birthday party or something, and my mom had rented Dumb and Dumber, and I was just like, Ew! Mom! (laughs) (laughs) This gross movie at my party? And all my friends seemed to like it. I was just in the corner like, This is gross. (laughs) Because I was a horrible child. (laughs) Now here, let's watch this Bob Hope and Bing Crosby Road to Morocco. (laughs) At the time, yeah, I probably would have put that on. I don't know. Um, Um... but yeah, I'm, I'm wondering now if the Fairley brothers, if they were also taking their inspiration from Hope and Crosby, or if they were like, oh man, let's do another Ishtar, <laughs> but for like 10% of that budget. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Ishtar is a good movie. Yeah. It is. Like, I really enjoyed I'm it. glad to hear somebody else say that. And I think like taken at, just like in a vacuum without the context of of the the times or whatever the budget was or you know whatever happened i mean i was just briefly reading over the wikipedia page because i didn't have any time to like prepare for this discussion at all seeing how we you know i didn't even know what the movie was until you know two hours ago um but uh i was just glancing over wikipedia and it seems like uh you know they columbia who put the movie out had spent all this money and talking in Hollywood had already sort of been going around that they were dumping all this money into this movie. And then they started to like sort of test screen it. And it was, they had a bad feeling that it wasn't going to be successful. And, uh, but so they were, they wanted to uh, just stop promoting it essentially. They cut the advertising budget, but because of, uh, they, they felt like they, wanted to stay on uh, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty's good side and that it was sort of like an ego thing of like, oh, well, we need to like show them that like we're behind their movie 
And so they they wound up spending all this money on on advertising anyway. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just kind of came out and got yeah, I, bad reviews, and people didn't go see it. Which is sad because it's a really good movie. Um, and I don't know what the final tally was, but I know that before before advertising and all the promotion and everything, the budget was already at fifty one million. In an era when the average Hollywood film was seventeen million, mm. so <laughs> man, boy, those those good old days, yeah. seventeen million average movie. I mean, now it's like, I mean, one hundred and seventeen is like low <laughs> for most of the movies that are coming out, like you know, on big, uh, big budget films. Good lord, and it's this crazy. This is thirty years ago, this year. And they were, I mean, so they were, Warren and Dustin were like 50 years old when making this movie also. They were huge stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like, it's, like, I, I don't, like, and they their recent films had been hits, but I don't know what Columbia was expecting, really, for, like, two 50-year-old guys in the desert. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's really nice to see... I mean, like, I, I think Dustin Hoffman is just, like... Uh, he's got such great comedic instincts. And he really is a great comedic actor. Warren Beatty, I haven't really seen much of his uh, comedy stuff. I mean, there was, like, Dick Tracy, but that wasn't, like, you know, overtly like a comedy. Was he in very much uh, many many other comedic roles? Well, he wasn't in very many other roles. <laughs> yeah, he's in some movies that are considered comedies, but they're not really like Shampoo. People refer to that as a comedy, but and I guess it kind of is, but it's not funny. It's not bad. It's just one of those movies that just exists. Um, we watched a Warren Beatty film together once. That's definitely a comedy uh, that might not necessarily be funny called Promise Her Anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, right Promise Her Anything. Yeah. That Tom Jones song? A year before Bonnie and Clyde. Um, Like, the first film that he directed, uh, Heaven Can Wait, which was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, uh, that's a comedy, and he also stars in it, and... He's got that Warren Beatty charm to him, you know? And, like, uh, Bugsy that he did for Barry Levinson in 91, that was also up for Best Picture. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily a comedy. It's, like, you know, the rise and fall of a gangster. But, like, there's this, like, one great scene... I haven't seen it in a long time, but there's this one moment that always um, pops into my head when I think about it, which is, like... He's running around wearing, like, this chef's hat. He's, like, trying to prepare a family dinner. And he's got, like, his family in this one room waiting for him to finish cooking dinner. And then in the other room, like, these gangsters keep showing up. And he's trying to, like, make a deal with them in the other room. Like, he has to, like, keep running back and forth. And I don't know. And maybe his crowning achievement as a comic actor might have been at last year's Oscars. Oh. (laughs) Or at least the most... uh, The moment where his habit of being the most charming guy in the room really saved his ass, I think. 
Yeah, Tim is referring to uh, the now infamous moment in which uh, La La Land was awarded Best Picture only for it to be taken away. Yeah. Um, and be re-awarded to Moon Knight, uh, Moonlight. Which was not his fault, and it's not Faye Dunaway's fault. It was the fault of somebody handed him the wrong envelope, and there was just some confusion. And he just kind of like... <laughs> came out and he kind of explained what happened and he did like his little like <laughs> like laugh <laughs> yeah. and it was just like oh warren it's okay and uh i wonder just how many thousands of women over the years have like been mad at him and he's just been like <laughs> and they're like oh warren i can't stay mad at you i don't know <laughs> do you think he was thinking up there on stage he's like well at least it wasn't another ishtar <sighs> he's always defended this movie I think it's well worth defending. Yeah, and like, um, there's nothing wrong with this movie. Yeah, and even even if it's like, even if, it, I don't know, even if uh, you don't particularly like it for you know your personal taste or whatever, I don't think there's any. I, like, you can't really say that it's like a bad film. Yeah. And there's all those great songs. Yeah. Which are horrible songs, which is why they're great. Yeah. And um... I mean, and they both of them uh, just seem like they're having the time in their life. And I love that they can't sing, and they're just singing. Yeah. I, I, I was trying to think. I'm like, have I seen Dustin Hoffman sing before? Does he have any other, like, singing history? I don't know. Does it? Does he sing in Hook? Oh, that's a good That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, he's not. it's not like a musical or anything, but I feel like there's a scene where he's just randomly singing or something. I don't like a yo-ho-ho type situation. He directed a film called Quartet a few years ago, which I actually watched downstairs from where we're recording this. Uh, he's not in it, but it's about singers. Just a random thing popping in my head. But, yeah, I mean, they're <laughs> terrible singers. Yeah. I, one of the things that finally convinced me, like, we need to do Ishtar on the show is um, uh, last weekend I was showing the movie, uh, the Woody Allen film, Everyone Says I Love You to Somebody, which is his musical he directed where he cast a bunch of people who are really good actors but not singers and you've got like just like tim roth and edward norton and alan alda and natalie portman just like singing edward norton comes off pretty well actually singing like old like songs from the 30s and 40s and doing like uh his horrible attempt at like a soft shoe but it's just there's something charming in about that movie we like the, this amateurish singing throughout it, and I was like, "That's just like Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty and Ishtar." I mean, watching them in this movie just sort of like riff off each other and just come up with these like melodies and yeah. silly <laughs> lyrics. Like, there's an infectious quality to it that makes you almost want to like start singing along with them and being like, you know, just throwing out random lines and stuff. And I may have um, cursed you today because like, I don't know if uh, not like this was the video from the ring or anything and i tricked you um but like when i first watched this movie i was like oh that was i'm surprised that was really good and then i started like humming and then like a week later the songs were just all still in my head Mm -hmm. and uh i feel like that might happen to you yeah what's the one that's like the, like the opening and the closing and the, one, the like, closing number there the tell them the truth, truth can be dangerous, dangerous business, business. Yeah, see now we're sounding just like <laughs> telling the truth can be dangerous business um 
honest and popular don't go hand in hand. <laughs> if you admit that you can play the accordion, <laughs> no one will hire you in your rock, rock and roll, roll band. band. Yeah. Um, and that was our <laughs> that was our uh, impersonation of them both. Uh, you know, and it's like the songs are like they have a catchy quality to them, even though they're being sung terribly. It makes you think like if they had hooked up with an actual singer, like maybe they could actually make turn those songs into something, uh, you know, better. Uh, maybe I don't know. <laughs> maybe not a hit. <laughs> maybe just some novelty <laughs> tune. Like I mean, the song that he sings for the couple celebrating their fifty third wedding anniversary. Right. That's the kind. Of, that that one's the the big sort of. Uh, I don't know. Clearly, it's so it's just misguided and like silly and it's just like i like just little snippets as they're writing together like the one about like i need some software for my machine yeah yeah (sighs) um so yeah for anyone who hasn't seen the movie um you have no idea what the hell we're talking about at all right now (laughs) it's you know it's about these two guys who are you know late getting later on into their life and they have their their sort of families they have their their wives and girlfriends and and, and such uh but they're not happy and they want to be songwriters and so they kind of throw all that away their their women leave them and they uh, just have nothing and they write these uh just these you know silly little (laughs) little songs um trying to scrape by and uh you know i'm watching the movie and i'm like okay yeah i want to see these guys I'm thinking it's going to be, we're going to be following them as they, you know, chart into becoming like an actual yeah. act, you know. <laughs> but then the movie takes this like left turn <laughs> where suddenly it goes all, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark on us. And uh, there's like, we're, we're off in, uh, in Morocco and in Ishtar and there's like this ancient map is discovered and, you know, the, by these archaeologists who are digging out there. <laughs> And uh, now it's, like, sparking all of this, uh, you know, there are these different factions, like the, the, the American CIA and then, like, the, the Sunnis and the Shiites. They all want this map, and it's destabilizing the whole region. And and uh, these two guys uh, get a gig singing in, uh, in Morocco and stumble their way right into the middle of all this. And uh, as you can imagine, uh, hilarity ensues, as they say. Yeah. Um. If you saw Isabella Gianni in, like, the way she was dressed, the way she was acting, would you immediately be like, well, clearly this is a boy? Yeah, no, that, that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the leaps that I, that I'm like, she doesn't really look like a boy. So one, the, the main, uh, sort of female lead is this, uh, is this woman who, I don't, is, is what nationality is she? Because she's, like, super pale skin and blue-eyed girl. Oh, the actress? Well, I mean, the character she's playing. Oh, she's just, she's from Ishtar, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and she, it's like her brother is the one who had, had found this map, and he died because of it, and it's now, and he hid it somewhere, and she's trying to find the map, and she gets swept up in, into, she's the kind of the one who sweeps them up into all this. Um, but yeah, there's this running joke that, uh, because she's all bundled up, she looks like a young boy yeah <laughs> who is uh breaking into uh warren Beatty's hotel room and kissing him on the mouth and you know he's wrestling with 
with the young boy. And for 1987, I, I, I think they have, like, admirable reactions to what they think is a guy coming onto them. Oh, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Aside from Warren Beatty punching him in the face, but uh, he did, well, she did, like, you know, break into his room, as far as he knows. He doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I mostly know her from Roman Polanski's The Tenant, Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, and uh, Andrzej Zalowski's Possession. And um, I feel like, I don't know, she has just a very distinct look to her. Yeah, absolutely. Now she, um, okay, I've seen Herzog's Nosferatu. Was she playing either Mina or Lucy? I think, is that one of the ones where they switch the names? In, in, in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, yeah. This is Mina she and Lucy, are, she, the names are swapped to the characters that they're supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, they do that in like the Broadway play, too. Um, Which is so confusing. Yeah, she she's the main girl. She's... So, yeah, so in in that movie, she's Lucy. Lucy Harker? Or is it Hutter in that? Cause I don't remember. The, all right. <laughs> she's the lead actress in gotcha. the 1979 yeah. Nosferatu. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's weird. It's, it's crazy when we were first introduced to her. You know, she's trying to convince Dustin Hoffman to give her his passport. And she and he, and he keeps dismissing her as a uh, as a young boy, until she proves <laughs> to him that she's a woman by just like quickly lifting her shirt and showing him it her, was, her boob. It was her classiest option. Yeah, it, it's it's really just like I don't know. That one moment is kind of just so bizarre. I don't I don't really get it. It was the '80s. It was the age of the R-rated comedy. Like I don't know. I like Dustin Hoffman's reaction to that, though. He's like, like, look what you have there. like, oh, well, look what you have there. <laughs> <laughs> she was dating Warren Beatty at the time. Oh. Um, their relationship was on the rocks during shooting, and it didn't quite make it all the way through post-production. And then by the end, he was with Joyce Heiser, who's, I think, most remembered for... Um, that movie just one of the guys where she is a girl in high school pretending to be a boy <laughs> i guess warren Beatty has a type yeah, well no that's the thing he has no type <laughs> he his type is just a, a human being who has a vagina there was actually a moment on set where like dustin hoffman <laughs> has this anecdote that he tells um where, like, he was arguing... They were, they were having, like, an argument about, like, what the hell is going on? This movie is, like, falling apart. We're, we have no idea what we're doing. And then, like, he was looking... Uh, I'm just gonna call him Warren. Warren and Dustin. Because, I don't know. Sure. All right, so he was looking at Warren. And uh, his eyes were just kind of, like, off in the distance. And so Dustin looks where he's looking, and he's just, like, looking at this woman walking by. And she's all... You know, they're in the Middle East. She's all covered. You, all you can see is, like, part of her face. And he's still just, like, checking her out, sort of. And Dustin's like, Warren, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I was just looking at that woman. And Dustin's like, all right, tell me, honestly, is there any woman in the world who you wouldn't sleep with? And Warren just looks at him, and he's like, huh. And he actually always, like, legitimately thinking about it. And, like, after, like, a while, he just goes, you know, no. 
And Essen's like, seriously? Why? And Warren goes, because you never know. And Dustin Hoffman said that was the most romantic thing he'd ever heard. Because <laughs> it's like... It's like, it's not about what you look like, yeah, right? it's but like, it's just like, maybe you're a great person and maybe you're the one for me. Yeah. Like, you never know. Yeah, and it's it's like, that is kind of interesting. Like, he would just... Because I'm sure, you know, maybe even now, there are many women who would love to have some Warren Beatty. I mean, he's off the market now, but... Um, you know, it's nice to know looking back, like, oh, I could have just gone right up to him... I mean, like, hey, Warren, yeah, and he he just would have, not me. I mean, I'm speaking as I'm speaking as a hypothetical woman from before he married Annette Benning. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but yeah, that's 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 neat. <laughs> he dated Madonna too, right? Yeah, that was uh, that was after Joyce Heiser. That would have been was, well. They worked together on Dick Tracy, right? Did that spring out of Dick Tracy, or were they together beforehand? And then I think I don't know. This is I don't know. I almost went a weird way with spring out. I tried to make a joke. It didn't work out. Um, I'm not sure if he hired her to play Breathless Mahoney because they were together, or if they got together because they were working together, or what. And he also shows up in her documentary that she was doing around that time. Um. Yeah, he just, I mean, there was like a 25-year period where Warren Beatty just had everyone. He, and, um, including Carly Simon, which that's his legacy there. I mean, for decades she wouldn't tell anybody, but now it's it's out. Yes, You're So Vain was about Warren Beatty. So that that's official now. Yeah. Okay. Like just just in the past few years, it was like, yeah, that was him. Because for a while, I, I know that. One... So all the all the do you think Warren Beatty heard that and was like, I knew it. He's like, I win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, how many other guys were probably like, oh, I guess I was pretty vain, huh? Thinking that it was about him, and you know, instead. Well, at the time, I guess there were some people who thought it might have been about Jack Nicholson, which is weird, but. I remember at some point, I think it was when I was in high school, she, like, auctioned off the secret. Like, for charity, she was, like, like the highest bidder, I'm going to whisper in your ear who it was about. And you're allowed to give one clue. And, like, I, don't, I have no idea who won, but, like, they paid some ridiculous amount of money, and she whispered in their ear, and he, he said, um, the, the person's name has an E in it. So Jack Nicholson was probably like, oh, thank God but I feel like there are a lot of people with E's in their names. So, like I like Robert how, I, I like how we other. just think about, like, you know, all these, like, prestigious Hollywood actors, like, sitting on, waiting on bated <laughs> breath to see, you know. And Jack Nicholson was really worked up, really off the hook there when he found out that it, there wasn't an E in his name. He's like, oh, thank goodness. I'm sure he cares. Yeah, I'm sure decades later, everybody was... Not really. I don't know. But so this is kind of a tangent that we're on right now. <laughs> or not. I mean, I feel like his uh, reputation as a ladies man actually definitely has a lot involved in this movie. Yeah. And because uh, like, as, as you mentioned before, they kind of they play off of that by making him just like, you know, completely passive. And he's just a big, just a big glute. Galoot. That's a perfect <laughs> word for it, yeah. You know, it's one of those movies... Like, in certain movies, he sort of plays up his southernness. 
and I feel like in most of them, he's just he just has like a kind of like a bland midwestern thing. But in this one, he's like a guy from Texas, and um, you know, it, it does play into a stereotype of southernness, I guess. That like you know, he's got that accent, so he's just like naive and he's not as street smart as the uh, the New York talking Dustin Hoffman, right? The Hawk, the Hawk. <laughs> it's very similar to Ratso Rizzo walking around with Joe Buck in Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm sure was on their minds as they were shooting those scenes in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no way to uh, to not be thinking that. Yeah, they shot the New York scenes last, which um, I really like those scenes. Like all, it's it's almost like it's a little like a little prologue where you just get to know them before they just send them off. <laughs> all right, it works beautifully because, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I was all ready for just like you know, if we were just following them in just in New York, just like trying to make their music career happen, like that still would have been a fun movie. Yeah, I, I you know because they were just that interesting to watch and that fun to watch, and they did the interiors uh, for that section at the Kaufman Astoria Studios in in Queens. I don't, I don't know if you've ever uh, been around there. It's like right around the corner from the Museum of the Moving Image. Okay. Um, which I've been to that museum a couple of times, I don't like three times, and like each time I like make it a point to like go over to that studio, which is still an active studio, um, because you know I've never been like to L.A. or anything, so it's like the one time where I'm like, oh my god, I'm standing outside a movie studio, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I like take pictures, and I'm like, the Marx Brothers made movies here, <laughs> but I haven't been there since I've seen Ishtar, so maybe next time. <laughs> I'll just be all excited about that. This is where Ishtar happened. <laughs> if that had been where Ishtar had happened completely, I think it would have been a positive experience for all of the people who had money involved. Um, right. But no. Um, in fact, uh, all the costs um, that were adding up throughout production led to uh, a new head of the studio like during the film. They, like, put uh, this guy, um, David Pittman, uh, in charge. Because he was known as more, like, uh, strict budget-wise. So they put him there. And then after the movie came out, and it was just was not successful, and it lost a lot of money, it actually led for... Like, Coca-Cola was the owner of Columbia at the time. Okay, you get a little Coca-Cola uh, product placement in this movie, too. I yeah. Uh, and... Um, the failure, the financial failure, I should say, of Ishtar is um, one of the reasons why Coca-Cola ended up selling Columbia to Sony. So, I think a similar thing happened to United Artists after Heaven's Gate came out a few years earlier. It's crazy how just like one movie can just like, yeah, totally derail a whole studio. Yeah, there were some people who referred to Ishtar as Warren's Gate like heaven's gate mm-hmm. because he was he was the producer and he he, he got it going because he felt like you know elaine may has helped me out because uh, not only on reds but also on his movie heaven can wait and stuff and um and also he just liked the movies that she had directed this was her fourth and final film that she directed despite the fact that she is still alive and still active as a script doctor and occasional actress um Nobody wanted to let her direct another movie after Ishtar. Uh, 
but she did the film A New Leaf with Walter Matthau. Uh, that was the first film she directed. Uh, I haven't seen that one, but I have seen her second film, The Heartbreak Kid, which starred Charles Grodin, who is in Ishtar, and he's always hilarious. And The Heartbreak Kid, it's really like... Like, if you're ever under, wondering why Charles Grodin ended up playing a doctor in what I think was the last season of the show Louie, um, like, Heartbreak Kid is, like, the... Maybe not the birth. Or maybe it is the birth. I don't know. This sort of, like, awkward comedy that's, like, the norm now on television. It's just, like, there's... It's not a movie that you watch for jokes. It's a movie you watch because it's going to make you so uncomfortable that the only thing you can do is laugh. It's that kind of a comedy. Um, and then she did a movie in the late 70s with John Cassavetes and Peter Falk that was a serious movie that, again, I haven't seen, called Mikey and Nikki. And um, that one wasn't very successful, and Warren Beatty was like, you know what? I think she's great. And I think what she needs is a producer who's just willing to back her. And I think it's just, you know, one of those things that's endemic to the Hollywood system of like, well, you know, she's a female director, so I think a lot of producers are not going to support her. And he's like, no, I am progressive. I, I'm Mr. Liberal. I am going to do this. I'm going to be that guy who gives this gal a chance. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the problems. Because he didn't, you know, he was... A producer, he could have said no many times to different things. Uh, if she was having trouble making a decision, he could have stepped in and made the decision for her, but he felt wrong doing that. And then at one point, uh, he had the option to uh, fire her and take over direction himself. And he said, I can't do that because I am a very public liberal Democrat. And I can't be the guy who takes this job away from this woman. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. this is back... He was very involved with uh, Gary Hart's campaign at the time. Um, he was dipping his toe in politics. And at the time, it was felt that if Gary Hart had won the 1988 presidential election, Warren Beatty would have been the guy behind him pulling strings. And he would have had actual, real political power. But 1987, the same year Ishtar comes out, that's the year of Gary Hart's sex scandal that just destroyed any hopes he had for the White House because he, you know, was involved with women on Warren Beatty's yacht and, like, stuff, like... No sex scandals like the sex scandals we're having re recently, just more like he was a married guy with women who weren't his wife. That's unbelievable. <laughs> An affair, you say? Oh, my God. Involving a politician? <laughs> and a Hollywood star? <laughs> um... But yeah, so Elaine May. What do you know about Elaine May? Honestly, nothing. Okay, so she starts out in the 50s with uh, Mike Nichols. Years before he became a director with, you know, He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate and dozens of others. Um, so Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Nichols and May, they were a comedy duo. And they were part of, like, this burgeoning... Uh, stand-up thing with like Woody Allen and Lenny Bruce and stuff at the time which was just like instead of getting up and telling jokes you know they were starting to just like they're gonna tell stories and they're gonna do these routines and the two of them would do often improvised 
uh, scenes together. Just a man and a woman getting up on stage and just having awkwardly funny conversations. And they actually ended up having a show on Broadway that was just the two of them talking. <laughs> Uh, that was extremely successful. Sort of like a uh, like a proto podcast. Yeah, except people can't see us. No, but the, I mean nowadays they do a lot of like live podcasts. Oh, okay, stuff, yeah, you know, right. like uh, it's become a much more popular practice, where it's like, oh, we're gonna go to this, I don't know, this bar, this uh, comedy club, this uh, convention or something, and they're gonna do, you know, it's just like two or maybe three people. That's true. Or, mics, uh, just like, you know, or like their friend's house to watch Ernest Scared Stupid. Yeah, exactly. Except with a paying audience. Yeah, I've heard some of those. They. We should try that sometime. If if we get to a point where we're, we think we're funny. Because <laughs> I feel like those are the good ones to, to do live. Yeah, I, this would probably <laughs> just be very... Uh, a little too dry. I yeah. imagine. <laughs> Tell um, me more about Charles Grodin, Tim. <laughs> um... Anyway, so uh, they ended up splitting up for reasons of their own. They remained friends, and they worked together many times over the decades. Uh, and Elaine May, she focused mostly on um, writing screenplays. And then, you know, her directorial career starts off. Um, after Ishtar, uh, there's, there's no more... Um, films that she directs but you know she does the screenplays for um let's see the the mike nichols film the birdcage they mm. got back together and did that together um and also she worked on the screenplay for his film primary colors which was the fictionalized account of uh pre-white house clinton's Starring John Travolta and Emma Thompson as the Clintons, which that's a very good movie. That was part of that like late '90s group of like high-profile political comedies, like Wag the Dog and yeah, um, with Dustin Hoffman and Bullworth. Bullworth, yeah, World Bank, yeah, yeah. Um, which that that's a great movie. I think that's also that was also shot by Vittorio Storaro, I believe, who's the cinematographer on Ishtar. Hmm. Uh, who also did like the Conformist and Apocalypse Now? Yeah, might be. Might want to return to Bullworth. It's been so long since I've seen that. It's a it's a very good movie. I saw it when I like because that came out when I was like a kid. Yeah, nineteen ninety eight, I think. Yeah, so I was like you know, know twelve, eleven or twelve or something. And you can see this is like a decade after Gary Hart's campaign fell apart. Uh, it's almost like some of the things that Warren Beatty has. Um, Bulworth say in that movie, it's like, you know, if, if I had ever had a chance to be involved in politics, I'd believe in these things. Right. I'd run on this. Right. It's weird, even a decade after Ishtar, that's still a movie where we've got, like, Halle Berry basically falling for Warren Beatty, and it's believable. <laughs> Is it? Is that just me? Just... Am I just Gaga for Warren over here? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're saying, like, in, in, 19, in 1998... Holly Berry falling for Warren Beatty. Yeah. yeah I mean, in the movie. I don't know about any real life. He was with Nat Benning at the time. Um, but yeah, uh, so Elaine May, uh, she also, you know, she was a performer. She showed up in the movie Small Time Crooks, directed by Woody Allen, which is not one of his best received films, but 
it's a very funny comedy. It's one of those movies, it's like a nothing movie. It's like, it doesn't necessarily do anything wrong. It's just a fun comedy. You can't expect, like, a masterpiece every time. It's right. Like, um, but she's hilarious in that, and she is actually in... Um, not his most recent project, but the last one to be released as of this recording, which was his Amazon series he did last year, Crisis in Six Scenes. She plays his wife. And her daughter actually played the mother of the lead character in the Woody Allen film Cafe Society, which also came out last year. So basically that whole group of people is very... They just keep working with each other. Yeah. Those funny New York Jews. Well, Woody Allen and Elaine May. I'm not Warren Beatty is not Jewish. One thing I, I did, another or another thing I really liked about the thing at the Oscars last year. I'm sorry to keep going back to that. Is um, when he first walks out on stage, it cuts to Shirley MacLaine in the audience, his older sister, and she sort of like waves to him, and you see him kind of smile and wave back, and it's like, aw, because like. There's not a ton of people their age still active in mm-hmm. Hollywood, and it's like these this brother these, and sister, yeah, siblings are there. Yeah, I don't and, think they've ever worked together that I can think of, but like they've both just had their own careers and they both been very successful for like. Ever. And and even when you get and, to that age and gone through the whole Hollywood experience, there's still something to being like, hey, I'm on, <laughs> I'm on stage at the Oscars and like it's like I'm still out here in the audience. We we made it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then after the kerfuffle. Uh, when, you know, they, you know, they're announcing, like, I'm sorry, there's been a mistake. Uh, La La Land was not the winner. It's Moonlight. It cuts to Shirley MacLaine, and she has, like, her hands on her face, like, Warren, what did you do? (laughs) (laughs) And you could see that she's actually, like, worried that he somehow fucked up. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird that they're brother and sister. I don't know. Isn't it? Yeah, I don't ever really think of them, as, you know, as yeah. It just always, for some reason, it's always like really, but I don't, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I demand a DNA test. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go take those samples. <laughs> uh, anyway, they're they're both very attractive people. Oh, is that where you were going with that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm take these DNA samples and. <laughs> Oh. Grow, my, grow my own offspring or something. I don't know. As a, to the best of my knowledge, Shirley MacLaine is still quite active and popular with gentlemen. Or at least she jokes about that. Again, tangent. <laughs> Shirley MacLaine's sex life is, is nothing to do with Ishtar. <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy Look, like, you know, Warren Beatty is like a huge star. Everybody knows Warren Beatty. And like, you look at IMDb he's got 33 acting credits that and that's just like the 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 IMDb total which there's probably a couple of those in there that are like that's over the course of 60 years but I mean in the 80s he made two movies Reds and Ishtar those are his two movies in the 80s Yeah, I mean, and, and you got to factor in out of those 33, there's just, like, random episodes earlier on in his career of, like, just, like, random TV shows and stuff. Yeah, I remember him as being a regular on... I mean, I don't remember him as being a regular on Dobie Gillis. Like, I didn't grow up in the 50s 
And I was like, oh, who's this random guy? I remember, like, being a kid watching it on Nick at Night and being like, is that Warren Beatty? But yeah, once he became a huge star, after Bonnie and Clyde, he became very selective about his projects. And I feel like it led to him, like, missing out on some stuff. I remember, um... He was Quentin Tarantino's original choice to be Bill in the Kill Bill movies. Oh, no kidding. But he did his Warren Beatty thing of, like, he wanted to make a lot of the decisions. And... That's not going to fly on a Tarantino set. Yeah. Um, that's You know, he clashed with a lot of directors. Um, like when he did McCabe and Mrs. Miller with Robert Altman. Um, he was all... In addition to being the lead actor, he was also a producer on that film. <laughs> And there's, like, this one story of, uh, they, they did, like, Robert Altman didn't really do that many takes, because he liked keeping things loose and fresh on his sets, and, you know, he, he's like, yeah, we'll figure it out in the editing, and, you know, we'll make it work and stuff. Um, and, like, Warren just wanted to get this one moment perfect, and he did, like, 20-something takes, and Robert Altman's like, I'm fine. Like, uh, I think we can all just, like, go get some sleep now. And Warren Beatty's like, um, just, I just want to keep, I just want to keep going. And Robert Altman was like, okay, I'm going to go get some sleep. You just, you know, go ahead and um, just see how it goes. And he did like a few more takes. And then at the end he said like, okay, print takes number. And he, he listed a few numbers and like, he just wanted to get it right. And he, um, that was an issue they had on Ishtar uh, is the amount of, film they were using mm. because somebody I don't know who this quote was from it was like if there's one person who uses more film than Warren Beatty and Stanley Kubrick it's Elaine May because they're just you know take after take after take after take because they just they I don't know about Stanley Kubrick and Warren Beatty, but as far as Elaine May was concerned, it was like she didn't quite know what she was looking for, but she felt that she would know it when she saw it. Gotcha. Which is, that's very difficult. So she couldn't give somebody direction, like, I want it more like this. She would just keep shooting and hoping that she'd see something that was just, like, the perfect thing she hadn't thought of yet. Yeah, that that seems the opposite of Stanley Kubrick's thing, which seemed to be, like, he had an exact vision for something. Mm. And if it wasn't being replicated in real life as to what he's seeing in his mind. Like he would just do it over and over and over again. I think the most notorious example was, uh, Scatman Crothers. Yeah. In, uh, the shining. There's one shot in that movie when he's talking to Danny in the kitchen that I think they did something like 240 some odd takes of that over the course of like (laughs) of the entire (laughs) shooting. They would just like, after, at the end, of, you know, at the end of shooting days, when they had a little bit more time, it would be like, "All right, we're gonna try that one again." And I'm sure Scatman Crothers was just ready to shoot himself by the end. But yeah, they was just was did he it one over who could, and over and over again? Who would try to like explain to the actor what he was looking for? I believe so. All right, because that was an issue. Um, the director William Wyler, he was also. Uh, um, a prodigious shooter. Uh, and one of his issues was he didn't always tell the actors why he wanted the, the retakes. But. 
Well, there's like a weird line where it's like, you don't, you try not to give actors line readings, you right? Because you don't, because you want them to be bringing their own energy and their own interpretation to what they're saying and how they're acting and stuff, without you just being like, do it exactly like this. That's the Charlie Chaplin way of directing. Well, I think, um, I think it probably works better in silent films. Well. In his like sound films, like cause that's something that Marlon Brando complained about when he was directed by Chaplin, because Charlie Chaplin in 1967 was like, no, 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 Marlon, say it like this. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I would imagine that this probably. I mean, somebody who is just coming from that world of like yeah silent films is probably and just use because in a silent movie like that, and especially in those sort of like physical comedy things, it's like you're using actors essentially as props. Yeah. In in a lot of cases. And his style in his silent days is actually kind of similar to the way that Elaine May was shooting with Ishtar. There's a documentary unknown chaplain, which I think is like three hours long. And it's one of those movies where it's weird to look back and think how, like what percentage of my life has been spent watching it. Like the miniseries of the stand, but I've seen it many times and it's, they got access to all these outtakes from Chaplin films going back to the teens. Cause he's one of those directors who fortunately for a story and saved every foot of film yeah he had his own like warehouse essentially yeah where he harold just, lloyd like, did too yeah um and you watch these outtakes and it's like they would show up on set and you know they, they had the set built they had an idea for the set and you just he'd be like all right um he'd look at the, the actors and be like maybe all right you play a nurse and you go over here and you're in a wheelchair you come over and it's just like you that's an amazing documentary because you're watching Charlie Chaplin invent his films like in front mm-hmm. of you. Um, At a time where like people were still figuring out what the medium could even do. And, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, like Elaine May wasn't that loose. <laughs> like she, I mean, they had the script, which she had written and everything like that, but she did, she had that improv background from like her stage work and stuff that she did with Mike Nichols early on and she wanted to try and keep things loose and she didn't like explaining everything to everybody because she was looking forward to what they might bring to the table but if they brought something to the table that she didn't like she wouldn't really want to say like no like this like or at least some sort of hint to get them in the right direction right um but that being said there are she got some great performances in this. Charles Grodin is fucking amazing in this. Yeah, he has a relatively small part as the uh, the CIA yeah. uh, operative or CIA agent. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he comes in. He doesn't get that much screen time, but he definitely leaves an impression. And... We did not shoot at two Americans in the desert. We did not! Well, who told you that? Like, just... Ah, oh, he's such a... Just sleazy guy, and it's it's very endearing. He is an evil man, basically, in this movie. Yeah, because he's just willing to just, uh, you know... He doesn't care about these guys at all, who are Americans. He, you know, he's just like, yeah, we'll just send them out to the desert and <laughs> let them die on their own, and he's making deals with the fucking... Uh, uh, Amir, yeah, the, the yeah, the Amir, just like okay, well, we can work on your. T- I won't be blackmailed, but I'll work on your timetable because he's just you know totally just you know bending to this guy's will. And I first uh, saw him in the Great Muppet Caper, and to this day, if I'm watching 
something and my sister is also watching it and he shows up she'll be like oh it's nikki because that, that was his character's name the great Muppet yeah he was like, uh the uh one of the the jewel thieves yeah and um also growing up a lot of people my age knew him from the beethoven films yeah that's that's primarily where I recognized him from. And yeah. honestly, I, I watching this movie, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy. I'm like, who is that guy? And then afterwards, you mentioned Beethoven, and I was like, that's it. Yeah. Beethoven. He was the father in Beethoven. And, like, in the early 90s, like, he had a cameo in So I Married an Axe Murderer, which I watched over and over growing up. I think up. He, was, he was in a bunch of those sort of, like, family comedies in the 90s, I think. Well, at a certain point... He pretty much just did the Beethoven movies, and then he had, like, a talk show briefly that was not successful. Um, and then he just kind of, like, disappeared for a while, and his big comeback was in 2000... I don't know. Uh, he was in a movie called The X with um, Zach Braff, Jason Bateman, and Amanda Peet. And it was... It was a weird movie... Uh, a lot of people had high expectations for it because also had Mia Farrow who wasn't working that much at the time actually still isn't working that much um, Amy Poehler had a small role before she started like you know, I think this was yeah this is a little before Parks and Rec but it was just one of those movies that just did not work but it was still it's like oh it's nice to see Charles Grodin and it's nice to know that he was still funny at least and, you know, like I said earlier, he was on a few episodes of Louis as a doctor who lived in his building. And, and like, early on, he started out in, like, small roles in Rosemary's Baby. Um, he was the... <laughs> he actually has the creepiest line in the movie, I feel like. Um, he was the doctor that Mia Farrow goes to see. Uh, to complain about her other doctor and just be like, oh my god, there's these witches and they want my baby. <laughs> and he's just like looking at her like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but like, she shows him like a book about witchcraft that she saw and it's a really weird response. He goes, can I keep these? And I don't know why anyone in that situation would ask if they could keep a book that somebody was... But anyway, I don't know. Um, and he also had a small role in uh, the Mike Nichols film Catch-22. 1970 and he worked with Warren Beatty on his directorial debut Heaven Can Wait and he is hilarious in that hilarious movie I love Charles Grodin yeah so in Ishtar I mean the cast is pretty small I mean it's essentially you've got Dustin Hoffman Warren Beatty um, Isabella uh, Isabella Gianni Isabella Gianni Agiani Agiani uh, E-D-J-A-N-I A Johnny Charles Grodin and then um, the agent the agent who I recognize his name the, the actor's name is Jack Weston and he was in a movie that I grew up watching Rad the hell is Rad exactly Rad is a uh, it's a BMX oh god biking <laughs> movie it's it, it is literally like it came out in 1986 all right and it is like the very definition of like what an 80s movie is it's like all every like uh conceivable sort of um 
stereotype of, of, of what like an 80s high school movie would be. Um, yeah, it's about a guy who's like a BMX racer and uh, Lori... Uh, how do you pronounce her last name? Lori Lachlan from uh, Full House. Okay. She was Uncle Jesse's uh, girlfriend. Yeah, Rebecca Donaldson, co-host of Wake Up San Francisco. Yeah, she was in the movie. But anyway, yeah. So I knew <laughs> I knew that guy from Rad, um, <laughs> but he was also in uh, Dirty Dancing. Apparently, who was he in Dirty Dancing? Max Kellerman. I think he was. Um... Did he run the resort? Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. He's also in Short Circuit too. I always liked him in Rad. He was sort of he was the sort of like the evil uh I think he was he was the the head of like the BMX racing association or whatever and you know our young scrappy up and comer, you know, off the street BMX racer he's like, "No, no, he's not the star, you know. Our real star is this guy, you know, Brett whatever who has all like the the big uh endorsements and stuff." So he he was kind of just the the sleazy business guy who's like railroading through the town you know sort of like the agent that he plays kind of like yeah yeah um it, are you is this a recommendation do you think would you would you rad? say that i should seek rad out well it was it's never been released on dvd it's only available on vhs okay so it's rather hard to find um i wish i still had my copy it was something that my my grandmother had and my brother luke and i would watch it all the time every time we would go up there um, to stay at her house, and then at some point she gave me the movie, and then I watched it with my friend Andy, who at the time was like big into like BMX biking and stuff, and we watched it together, and he just absolutely loved it, and so I was like, you know what, you can have the movie, and uh, I, I, you know, I kind of regret giving it away because it was, uh, but I mean, you know, it's like I'm glad that. that give a friend something like that but um apparently the the vhs can command some high prices on ebay i think it's on youtube probably <laughs> or it might just be one of those things where it's no it this is an hour and a half of a picture of the poster uh, okay yeah yeah because it's listed as red full movie on youtube several times and they all have different run times one of these might be the actual movie. Are you looking for this movie to watch online streaming? Visit now at cgb2.com. Okay, yeah. So it's streaming somewhere, but not on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, anyway. If you get the chance to to see Rad and you're looking for a cheesy fun time, I'd recommend it. It's weird how I guess it's not like I can see how this movie might not have been successful because like maybe kids wouldn't want to go see it because it's like oh it's these old guys I don't know but like it is very of it's time as like all the like the, you know there's a a lot of these comedies in that era and there's still some today that just like turn into action movies yeah you know it kind of reminded me of um some of like the Gene Wilder Richard Pryor comedies mm. 
that were done like in the eighties. Yeah. Um. It's. It's Ishtar. It kind of like it rides this weird line sometimes, where it's like, it's not full out like sort of like slapstick humor, but mm. there are like little moments where it's like, oh, the camel is standing on Charles Grodin's foot, and then later in the movie we see that like his foot is actually broken. Yeah, like it wasn't just a gag; it was something that just carries over for the rest of the movie. Like yeah, which is just kind of odd. It, I don't know. It's a joke that kind of doesn't really fit with the rest of the tone of the movie. Yeah. Because it's just something that's sort of like it's it's a little too slapsticky. Um, or even like the notion of the camel being blind. Yeah, the <laughs> like... bl- yeah the blind camel gag. Uh... They spent a lot of time and a lot of money looking for a camel with blue eyes because on film. A blue-eyed camel will appear blind. That was the thinking. Okay, I was gonna. I was wondering <laughs> about this camel because clearly, yeah, his eyes are odd-looking. Yeah. And I was like, is that an actual blind camel, or is that just how all camels' eyes look, or do they put like contact lenses on this camel? Like what? No. Oh, you know what? You should have been on the set because you could have just been like, "How about some contacts?" And they'd be like, "Oh, okay, you just saved us thousands of dollars." <laughs> But no, they they looked for one, and I guess um, the people who went to find one, they found one at like the first place they went to, and they were like, "Well, we don't want to just get the very first one we see." And you know, he's, I think the guy asked for like seven hundred dollars, and they were like, "Well, you know, we'll we're gonna look around, we'll come back or something." So they went uh-huh. looking for more, and they couldn't find one anywhere. They finally went back to that first guy, and he was like, "We ate it yesterday," so they had to continue their search. Um, There was also a lot of issues with the dunes. Um, there's some differing opinions of what actually happened. Um, one person saying like that they had to go out and they had to bulldoze dunes to make things flat. And then Elaine May came out and said, where are the dunes? And they're like, you told us to flatten them. And then also, like, she wanted dunes in certain places, and they moved a lot of the sand so that dunes would be in certain places. And then she's like, why did you do that? I want it this way. And, like, but no one's really, you know, some people believe one of them, some people believe the other one. Um, I mean, in the finished film, the desert is shot beautifully. It is, yeah. And I like the reveal of the auction uh-huh. when um, it's weird. I've seen this in a few movies that are shot in like deserts and stuff where you're just seeing like these characters in the foreground. All of a sudden the camera moves and you're like, oh, they're on top of a huge hill. Yeah. And then it, you... well, because the way that, I mean, sand is, it's just all yeah. this one color. And mm. so when the camera's not moving and it all appears just flat, it looks like you, you can't tell the depth of like a dune that's, you know, 20 feet away to a dune that's 200 feet away. Right. So it just all looks, you know, but then once that camera starts to crane up, you realize like, oh, it's actually like, you know, the depth of field is much further. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, they shouldn't have shot it there. <laughs> they shouldn't have left America to shoot in the desert. Uh, money-wise, because the movie, I think, is fine. But as far as, like, keeping a control on, like, on the budget and everything, and 
you know, making it not a huge financial disaster that caused the studio to change heads and then be sold and, like, all this other stuff, like... Yeah, was it all worth Ishtar? <laughs> no, clearly not. Um... Here in Morocco, we found the spirit of Ishtar. Yeah, that's, like, my favorite song, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I like that the, um, that telling the truth can be dangerous business thing. I like, later when they're, like, being chased around, like, the the synth score, it kind of, like, has that. It's like, do 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 as they're, like, running on the rooftops and things. I didn't notice that. Yeah. That's great. This is, this is the fourth time I've watched it, and that's actually the first time I've noticed that. And so most of those little songs that they're singing, and there are a lot of them, because they're just like riffing on all sorts of things that they're <laughs> that's happening to them, or that they're trying to like you know, some another character will say a line about like you know, oh, like you know, another half an hour. So then all of a sudden the two of them just like jump into like yeah yeah that's good like another half an hour like the half hour before or whatever it is. Uh, a, a lot of those songs were written or co-written by Paul Williams. Of Daft Punk fame. Of Daft Punk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, Mo, I come to, to, to know uh, Paul Williams from his work with the Muppets. Yeah. Um, he wrote Rainbow Connection and most of all of those great classic Muppet songs that you know from, from the films, anyway. Um, Did he do the ones in the Muppets take Manhattan? I believe so, yeah. not good i don't know i mean <laughs> like he'd better have i'm pretty sure he did muppet movie and muppets take manhattan um as well as a few other bits and bobs here and there for various other muppet projects and stuff like uh, emmett otter's jug band christmas but i he i've always been a, a big fan of his uh his songwriting he did we've only just begun also right the carpenter yeah. song yep. and yeah and he also played Virgil in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And like you wouldn't really even think about it when watching the movie, but then if you if you go into it knowing that like oh one of these apes is played by Paul Williams, you can spot. Him. Yeah, it's like oh <laughs> yeah. well there he is. Because Paul Williams, if you if you see a picture of him, like he has a very distinct look to him. Yeah, he looked like a little boy forever. Like in in the sixties, he's in a movie, The Loved One, um, which is the very funny dark satire on hollywood and the funeral industry um and also uh arthur penn's film the chase and it's like it's weird looking at it because it's like is that a child doing this or is that an adult playing a child what's going on um and he also uh was one of the leads he's the villain he's swan in phantom of the paradise which he wrote the songs for which are some brilliant songs Um, yeah, and you mentioned Daft Punk. He he uh, wrote and sings on on one of the songs on uh, Random Access Memories, which is funny enough. I was never into Daft Punk. Yeah, I just I never really. I only heard what was on the radio sometimes or whatever, and I just sort of dismissed them as being kind of just like oh, it's just like one more time electronic dance club music or whatever i didn't even really care about it which i liked at the time until i i just happened to catch like the end the very end of like the grammys in which they won that award for best album of the year or whatever for random access memories and paul williams was the one who accepted the award 
for them. And I was like, what the hell does Paul Williams have to do with anything? <laughs> so Paul Williams was literally like my gateway into Daft Punk. And then I listened to that album and I was like, this is actually like really friggin' good. So, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm just an old man. So yeah, you got a soundtrack by Paul Williams. You got a script by Elaine May. You got Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty starring in it. You got they're supported by Charles Grodin, Isabella Gianni. It's filmed by Vittorio Storaro. I mean, the yeah, pedigree right? of this film is, is phenomenal. Pretty, yeah, pretty damn high. <laughs> and yet, I don't know. That year, um, I'm looking at a list right now of uh, the films that did make money. The top ten highest grossing films of 1987. And... Yeah, what the hell else came out in 1987? All right, well, counting down from number 10, we got The Witches of Eastwick. Okay. Lethal Weapon. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Stakeout. The Secret of My Success, which I loved as a kid. That movie does not hold up. It makes no sense, and I can't figure out why most people are doing any of the things they're doing. Um, the Untouchables, the Brian De Palma yeah. film that mm -hmm. finally made Kevin Costner a star. Uh, Moonstruck. Good Morning Vietnam, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Fatal Attraction, and the number one film of the year, money-wise, Three Men and a Baby. Wow. Directed by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's so, It's so alien. Like, that was just 30 years ago. What's weird is that's... And, like, things have changed so much just in the whole film industry. It's crazy. And it's weird that it's 30 years ago, but these are all all films that I could mention to most people and they'd be like, oh yeah, that movie. Yeah, most of them, yeah. Yeah. I think maybe uh, a lot of people might not remember Stakeout. Um, they might remember the sequel, another Stakeout, which I guess nobody liked. Um, so that was the top 10? That's the top 10 highest grossing films in 1987. That's crazy. I mean... Today, it's just like, I mean, it's all animated films and gigantic, bloated, huge action films and Well, I mean, action-wise, you got your Lethal Weapon and the Untouchables and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah, but it, there, there's a big difference between those kinds of action oh, definitely. movies and, like, you know, Transformers. Yeah, and, action movies used to be a different... You know, your Spider-Man and your... Uh, I mean, they had those kind of ac action movies back then. But back then, yeah. the kind of ac action movies that we have today, in the 80s, those were like, you know, canon films was putting those out. Those were like the cheap-ass Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson, uh, like, just, uh, I don't know what the hell was going on with those, you know? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, you also had Schwarzenegger and Stallone and stuff, but still, it was, they weren't, I don't know, they weren't classy action movies. <laughs> it was action for the sake of action. What's a what's a classy action movie? What, what what's an action movie that you would say is like, well, that's a classy action movie. A classy action movie. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the hell kind of corner have I painted myself into here. A classy. Action I don't know. Movie. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> I wanted to see you paint your way out. Like uh, from that period, an eighty a classy eighties action movie would be something like. I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of action movies. I don't know, Tim. <laughs> uh, 
Lethal Weapon has a good reputation. Is that a classy movie? Die Hard. I've never seen Die Hard. That's supposed to be pretty good, right? I, I Those are the ones that I would say are like classy action movies. Maybe the James Bond today's... movies? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, those are, those are classy. <laughs> sure. Maybe, I mean, not circa 1987? <laughs> yeah, that would have been like <laughs> Timothy Dalton era. Yeah. I don't know if, I can't remember if either of those came out in 87, but it would have been right around that time. What was that, Living Daylights? And... Um... No, or, wait, it no, was no. Uh, um, uh, oh god, I can't remember. Yeah, Timothy Dalton, where they? It was licensed to kill and um, a view to a kill. Nope, that was that was still Roger Moore. I'm so they sure. had a view to a kill and license to kill. I That's, think so. So there was a. I don't like that. I could be wrong. The Timothy Dalton films are the ones I've seen like the least. I just know a view to a kill had the Duran Duran song, so I'm assuming it was yep. at some point in the eighties. Well, it's confusing because there is a View to a Kill and The Living Daylights were Duran Duran and Aha. Aha. And I kind of get those mixed up sometimes because they're like the two 80s pop bands that, you know. I think a good example of a classy action film is Ishtar. How about that? Okay, yeah. Dalton appeared in uh, The Living Daylights in 1987. Okay. The Living Daylights, that's the one. Wait, didn't I say that? Did you? I thought you said View to a Kill. I did, after you said License to Kill. I thought I started okay, Living Daylights. Okay, right, yeah. So, View to a Kill was Roger Moore. License to Kill is Dalton. So Dalton did License to Kill and The Living Daylights. Yes. He just did two? He just did the two. Oh, he only did two? Why does everybody make such a big deal out of George Lazenby only doing one, then? Like, what's so impressive about that? I think that because we... that was... Because Sean Connery came back after George Lazenby. Okay. He did it in the middle of... Like, and around Sean Connery. All right. Which makes it kind of, like... You know, just forgettable in that way. Because it's like you do four Sean Connery films, and then one George Lazenby, and then another Sean Connery. is kind of like... You know... It, it just it, it, it wasn't a commitment to a whole other thing. It it'd be like, like if the movie Batman and Robin, Michael Keaton had come back, and then all of a sudden Val Kilmer. Yeah, is Val just Kilmer. Is just that, yeah, totally. <laughs> and then Roger Moore went on to do like six or seven Bond movies, and then Timothy Dalton had two. Hmm. But anyway, this is this whole James Bond <laughs> conversation. Um, well, it's November. It happens for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why November always just feels like the Bond month. <laughs> Um. Yeah, this. Uh, but Ishtar. I was feeling the uh, Indiana Jones influence mm. from that first when when it makes that left turn in the movie, and all of a sudden it's like we're in Ishtar, and we yeah, have the tense. yeah, and we're like looking out, and and there's like the uh, archaeology expedition, and it looked almost just like a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, or The Force Awakens. When we see Max von Sydow, for some reason. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, the ten, like, yeah at the beginning of Force Awakens. Yeah. they watched Ishtar before <laughs> they made The Force Awakens. Yeah, J.J. Abrams is a huge Ishtar fan, actually. Um, but then, but it was interesting because in the credits, one of the first, cre- at the end of, the, of Ishtar, one of the first credits that comes up is second unit director Michael Moore. Yeah. And the question that <laughs> we had immediately was like, is that the Michael Moore that we know today who is the documentarian michael moore 
because back then in 87 he would have that would have been during his sort of like uh and he would have been writing for mother jones at the time or something i don't well he went and directed like canadian bacon in the 90s was that in the early 90s yeah because that was like i think the the last film john candy did before he died roger and me was 89 that was his first Okay. Uh, I just thought it was plausible that he could have, because I don't really know much about his early career or whatever, but I thought it would be plausible that he would be working on, you know, a second unit director on the Hollywood movie or whatever. Um, and this has a political bent to it, too. Definitely. So you know. Um, but it's not that Michael Moore. No, it is somebody who's usually credited as Michael D. Moore. Probably and, took that D. Took that D. Uh, <laughs> it probably added the D. Uh, initial there uh, after the other michael moore became famous yeah but this michael d moore worked on all three of the indiana jones films he did so i don't know if there was that direct connection there or not but uh with with those especially those early archaeology scenes Mm -hmm. maybe at a certain point in production elaine may was like you know i'm taking an awful long time to shoot this um hey mike (laughs) You've done this kind of thing before. Can you just go shoot some tent exteriors for me? Yeah. So we talked a little bit about Warren Beatty's career. I alternate between Beatty and Beatty because I don't know. So I'm just covering all the bases. (laughs) All the Beatty bases. Yeah. Um, I always say Warren Beatty. Okay. Warren Beatty. Makes sense. Do you say Ned Beatty? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. All right. Um... But yeah, I mentioned uh, Warren Beatty only did two films in the 80s. Uh, Ishtar. Beatty in the 80s. Yeah. Um, Ishtar and Reds. Dustin Hoffman also, in the 80s, he just did, he did Tootsie. He did a TV version of Death of a Salesman. Ishtar, Rain Man, and Family Business. Pretty lean years. They, uh, I mean, they were both expensive actors. They were both known as difficult actors. Um, and well, I mean, at least two of those films in that short list of, of things were pretty well accomplished. Yeah, Tootsie and Rain Man. Tootsie and Rain Man. They yeah. were both nominated for Best Picture. Rain Man won Best Picture, at the Oscars. Um, Family Business is an interesting film. That's a Sidney Lumet uh, sort of crime comedy where um, it's an entertaining film and um, it kind of falls apart at the end logic-wise and it doesn't really pay off well. And a lot of people, I was reading reviews of it, um, they couldn't quite get over the casting, which is you have to believe that Matthew Broderick could be Dustin Hoffman's son and that Sean Connery could in turn be Dustin Hoffman's father. And like, I mean, yeah, you don't know what the mother looked like. <laughs> so it is something that I feel like a lot of casting directors don't always take into uh, consideration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All three of those actors just really look nothing alike. Yeah. Yeah, thinking about it now, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um... Yeah, Dustin Hoffman, starting in the 90s, he just started showing up in, like, everything. 
and he has like a ton of credits you know in the 2000s up to today uh, yeah it's it he just like i notice it with a lot of actors of that era and of his sort of caliber yeah where we sort of reach the 90s and then throughout the 2000s it starts to just be like oh what are we doing mr megorium's wonder emporium okay yeah i'll sign yeah, on to that you definitely like, what see are we, you know you definitely see that with robert de niro yeah robert well, de niro like, yeah who's in the past like 20 years I, pe- I feel like people mostly know him as like oh he's that comedic actor yeah probably and i that's... mean yeah if you were growing up like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. If you were a kid, like in the early, in like the early two thousands, yeah. and it's it's weird because like that era for him sort of starts with his collaboration with Dustin Hoffman and Wag the Dog, which is like it's a serious comedy, but it's still mm-hmm. a comedy, and they're both very funny in it. And then after that, he did like Analyze This, and then Meet the Parents. Yeah, Meet the Parents, um, and then it sort of just evolves from grandpa. there. You know, Robert De Niro is Dirty Grandpa. Al Pacino's doing a lot of comedies. And, yeah, it's um, just crazy. And I mean, it's it. I'm sure it's like you know, it pays the bills. I mean, and, and if they're having fun, and they're having fun because it. it's just like, and, do I want to devote you know a year to getting into this serious you know mindset or whatever? And he's like, I've done all that. Like, uh, and I mean, his I think um, his most recent credit is on. The Meyerowitz story is new and selected, which I think was a direct to Netflix film. Dustin Hoffman, you mean? Yeah. Um, which I think that's a more serious one, right? But he's he's it's got Adam Sandler in it and Ben Stiller. I don't know what's like, it called. The Meyerowitz stories, new and selected. Yeah, I have no idea what that is. Okay, um, it's been well received. It's a comedy drama, that's what and it's, it's through Netflix. At. Yeah. Um so confusing these days there's so many different like because it's like movies will come out but yeah. it's like it's just on that it's just on that yeah so i think like, and that's oh, okay. part of that netflix <laughs> the, the notorious netflix deal that they made with adam sandler right where they're like they made you know x number of films they signed him up for and he's just been crapping out random things like like most adam sandler movies it's like all right where can i get them to send me and my friends on vacation while we happen to be making a movie yeah <laughs> which i mean hey it's nice work if you can get it i mean are you gonna turn that down hell no yeah i mean and that was like a huge i mean he got it was like a million dollar friggin deal to be like okay you know like a 10 picture deal or something crazy it's just like okay this time we're going to hawaii like this time we're going here and like we're gonna bring rob schneider we're gonna bring fucking kevin james we're just gonna like all have a party out here but it's like every now and then adam sandler i feel like he kind of takes a moment to be like oh you know what i've been doing these these nonsense movies is to have a good time i should probably remind people why i'm worth this money and then he'll just kind of throw in uh something like well i this is me not having seen the Meyerowitz stories but it's it's been well received so he'll do that and like you know he did punch drunk love and like uh his 9-11 movie rain over me which uh, and you know he's good he just he really just seems like one of those lazy guys who just doesn't want to be good (laughs) It, but I mean, is it lazy? I mean, we, we look at like his filmography. He's got so many movies. He's no, like, he's, his like, the guy is like constantly is working. Yeah, working. Mm. <laughs> is it work? I'm sure it's work. Right. I'm sure he's and working he's... harder than like I am. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. But I don't know. And he like he's been good in things that aren't necessarily 
great movie. Like the movie Funny People, it's a very that's a very mixed bag. But I think he has he does a very good performance in it uh, with with Judd Apatow there. Um, but yeah, we're not talking about Adam Sandler. We're talking about Ishtar. Um, it's just weird that like I mean Adam Sandler can like I don't even know how many movies he's put out on Netflix over the last like two or three years. Yeah. Just because I'm not paying much attention to those. But it is just weird because, like, you're used to seeing, like, commercials on TV and, like, advertisements and posters for, like, oh, the new Adam Sandler movie or whatever. Right. And there was a time back in, like, the late 90s and stuff where you, you would be aware of, like, oh, there's Happy Gilmore, there's The Waterboy, there's Little Nicky or whatever. <laughs> or, um, you know, uh, what was the... Um, the Happy Gilmore? No, the, the one where he was, uh, like, an adoptive parent oh big daddy big daddy there you go i kind of enjoy that one and you're aware of it when they come out because they're like advertised and they're promoted and like they're out in theaters and you see when you when you drive by the mall you have like the you know you see the names mm. of the movies and you're like oh that's yeah that's out now and all. now it's just like oh yeah it's up it's on netflix yeah. and there's like been like five <laughs> of them up there and it's just like oh like i don't even know what they are <laughs> It's just crazy. And like, and now it's just like, oh, yeah, Dustin Hoffman's in these movies. And, like, it's just getting so much... It's not like it's uh, any any lesser than what's going on in the theaters. It's just like... Because, obviously, actors are and directors and stuff are willing to go to those outlets and, and actually work there. The, the prestige isn't any less than, like, being in the theater, almost. Yeah. It's it's interesting that um, the caliber of actor that he's been able to get for some of these movies, not just the Netflix movies, because like you know we just said Dustin Hoffman was in the newest one, and then like in Jack and Jill, which is the movie where like he plays like his own sister, and then it's like Al Pacino appears as himself as like an actual like supporting character in it. Um, Does he really? Yeah, and then of oh, course geez. anger management. With, it's uh, him and Jack, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. Yeah. And I, that's a movie that I was like, I think it was like maybe right after Punch Drunk Love. And I wasn't a huge Adam Sandler film or fan. Um, like I loved him on SNL. And then, you know, I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm too sophisticated. For that. <laughs> it's, it's like me with Dumb and Dumber when I was like 11 years old. So I'm like, too sophisticated for this, this Adam Sandler This is too lowbrow. So I, I kind of stayed away from his movies to begin with. Um, and then after Punch Drunk Love, I was like, okay. Uh, and then so Anger Management came out, and I was like, all right. So Jack Nicholson probably saw him in Punch Drunk Love and was like, I want to work with this guy. Like, that that's, in my imagination, that's how this worked out. So I was actually excited to watch that movie, and I, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. It's got some funny bits in it. Jack Nicholson is hilarious in it. Going back, you know, like, I, I saw Billy Madison on TV a few times, and that's actually a really really fucking funny movie um anyway but yeah jack nicholson is one of those actors like we were just saying how dustin hoffman and al pacino um and robert de niro like they're very prolific in recent years and they're just they seem to just show up in whatever and then jack nicholson is like one of those actors along with like warren Beatty or gene hackman Mm -hmm. who they just like hit a point where they just started slowing down and then jack nicholson uh, hasn't had a movie released since 2010. Yeah. Gene Hackman, uh, I'm not sure if it was official, but he basically retired after Welcome to Mooseport in like 2004 or 5. 
Warren Beatty. <laughs> it's weird. Like he did Bullworth uh, in like '98, and then a few years later he did Town and Country, which was not a successful film. And then he did like a TV special about the history of Dick Tracy, where he played Dick Tracy. <laughs> really? Whoa! And Man, then... he's he just loves Dick Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> And then, all of a sudden, in 2016, he directs his fifth film called Rules Don't Apply. He plays Howard Hughes in it. And you'd think... I remember hearing about that when it was, like, being filmed. I was like, oh, Warren Beatty's got another... He's doing another film. It's almost... You know, it was, like, 18 years after Bullworth. And, you know, he's got, like... You know, he's this huge um, Hollywood legend... And I was just kind of waiting for this film to come out and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then at a certain point, like I'm just on Amazon going through like things recommended for me and it's like, oh, rules don't apply on Blu-ray. And I'm like, what What happened? It just completely under the radar. Like he had a film out last year. Mm-hmm. He directed and he stars in it and it's got like other stars in it and stuff and just... So I don't know if people just didn't bother to watch it or if people didn't like it or what. I'm curious about it, though. Do you think that had anything to do with his uh, appearance at the Oscars? It's sort of just like, oh, yeah, you, you made another movie. <laughs> like, you're not nominated for anything, but come on, we'll, you know. Well, they said at the time the... that it was, cause it, was, it was him and Faye Dunaway because it was the 50th anniversary of Bonnie and Clyde. Oh. Although, Oscar-wise, that would have been this coming Oscar ceremony. Because that was a 67 movie, so it would have been the 68 Oscars. Which was that weird year where you had, like, The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde representing, like, the, the new style. And then you had Dr. Doolittle, <laughs> uh, which was just whatever the fuck that was. And then in the heat of the night and guess who's coming to dinner, which were like more traditional, but they still had these like kind of like new values to them. And you know, they both had city Poitier in them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm curious about rules don't apply. Uh, Cause like, it's when, when somebody doesn't work that often suddenly chooses to work again. Right. You'd think that it'd be something that's like, Im- that has a lot of passion behind it. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, sometimes you wind up with stuff like, uh, like I was all excited when John Carpenter's The Ward came out mm. because it was like he hadn't done a movie in a while. And it comes out and it's like, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a movie. Mm. How do you feel about them as actors? Like, not necessarily in this movie, but in general. Our two leads. Because they're definitely stars, and you can't deny that they are very good at being stars. But what about their their acting styles? I really like Dustin Hoffman, and I mentioned it earlier. Um, I think he's just got, like, just really great uh, comedic sense and timing. Yeah. Um, and he's got this, like... Um, very serious undertone to him even when he's doing things that are like funny and comedic I think a lot of the best jokes in Tootsie involve him being dead serious yeah I mean he his stardom post the graduate really signaled that shift from like 
if you looked like Warren Beatty and you were trying to be a star in the 50s, I'm pretty sure that, you know, that just would happen. They would hand you that. <laughs> but then Dustin Hoffman, they'd be like, you're going to be the wacky neighbor and you're going to have like three lines over here or something. <laughs> or like, right. you're, or yeah. like you're going to be the guy who tries to rape this girl. Like, just, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, like little bit parts and stuff. Yeah, because he, he's, yeah, he, when you think about what a traditional Hollywood star looks like and what that is, it doesn't really look like Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. And then, like, after, you know, The Graduate, you know, he becomes a star. He does something like Ratso Rizzo mm-hmm. in Midnight Cowboy. And it's like, that's that period where, like, these people who should just be character actors, like I mentioned Gene Hackman and Jack Nicholson, stuff, all of a sudden they're, like, leads in major motion pictures and huge fucking stars. But you still have people like Paul Newman, Robert Redford, and then Warren Beatty. Um, who could have just settled into one of those careers where you're just like the pretty boy and everything, but he always wanted to like sort of like help push the system a little bit. And it always, every time I watch one of his movies, it kind of takes me a little bit to get into his performances because he, starting out, there are a few actors like this where I'm like watching it and I'm like, oh, he's not really much of an actor, is he? He's just this handsome fellow, and he's just saying these lines, and they're not really meaning anything. But then at some point during his movies, I just am suddenly like, okay, he's this guy. You're just in it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it is, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I like how uh, in, in Ishtar, Warren Beatty, he is like this very big, tall guy and they accentuate it by giving him these like ridiculous hats like these winter hats that are that they purposely sort of like point up so yeah. they, it makes him just look even taller um so he's this huge guy but he just the character is just so small hmm. i really love the girlfriends well the wife and the girlfriend in the early oh, yeah. scenes yeah where it's like they're just like putting up with so much and then finally it's just like no <laughs> yeah and dustin hoffman's girlfriend is played by carol kane yeah who In possibly her most restrained performance ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was wait i was you know I, I was waiting for her to kind of come back into the picture or something because of just who she is and yeah. like i don't know i was expecting more from her but i always like when she pops up and stuff hmm. I, I like the way that it develops their friendship the way that it shows how they meet that moment of excitement when dustin hoffman gets that note like there's yeah. a song right here and he wants to buy me a drink <laughs> well, and more babies in the background waving like and it but, but it's funny because it is like it's that thing of like when a guy wants to get the attention of a girl yeah he'll send the girl a drink yeah you know and it's like and the waiter will come over and be like oh compliments of the gentleman at the end of the bar or whatever <laughs> It's essentially that scene where, and right in the middle of like of uh, Dustin Hoffman's girlfriend saying like, "Do you really love me?" and he's like, "Well, uh, I don't really know." Yeah. And then the waiter comes over and is like, "Compliments of the gentleman over there," and he's like, "Oh!" And the, you know, you see Warren Beatty like waving him, waving to him, and he just leaps out of the chair to go talk to him. And then spend what we assume is just hours just playing the piano and singing with him and making up random songs right off the bat while 
the two women are just sitting there, just like staring. Yeah. <laughs> and so what... it it is kind of a love story in that way, where yeah. it is like the two these two guys like sort of just you know they they lose everything and have nothing, and then they just have each other and. Uh... <laughs> and it doesn't even. I mean, like they are on two opposing sides of this like almost war without even realizing it because they're being manipulated. And also like this uh, woman who it seems like she's coming between them. No, their friendship is stronger than that. And she kind of just ends up with both of them at the end. Yeah. (laughs) Which sometimes was implied with like the characters that Dorothy L'Amour would play in the Hope and Crosby films in the, in the forties. But yeah, it's, 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 as far as like buddy films go, this is like a true buddy film because it's just focused on buddies. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and something that we've brought up before, um, forever ago in like our ancient episodes, uh, is um, that house on the beach that like um, Margot Kidder had in the early seventies, where like all the filmmakers would hang out and talk to each other and stuff. And, um, when Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman get together and they're just like, all of a sudden like, you're a songwriter, I'm a songwriter, oh my God. And they just get all excited about that and they're ignoring the women. It's like, in an interview, Margot Kidder was saying like, yeah, there wasn't a lot of, uh, like that much sex going on as far as like, you know, there were all these guys there and there were all these girls there. But really, all the guys were just off in the corner, like, "Oh my God, this! You've seen that movie? I love this movie!" <laughs> and then the girls were kind of like, "Guys, come on!" <laughs> Which is ridiculous when you think of the, the caliber of women that they were hanging out with. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, As they're, people, they're, they're telling the truth. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <so easy. laughs> uh, but it happens, and um, yeah, I don't know. But that's 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 neat. <laughs> I've I've definitely been in situations like I mean as somebody who can just talk for hours about random movies into a microphone like this like there's definitely situations in real life when I just run into somebody who likes movies, um, and we get talking about movies and then all of a sudden it's like oh, where are the people I was hanging out with three hours ago? They've already left. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> have you ever seen a camel in like in in person? No. And you know, I was looking at this camel during the scene where uh where Dustin Hoffman is talking with uh, Charles Grodin right. by the camel. Cuz you get some nice close-ups of the actors, but the camel is like in the foreground. Right. So you're seeing like all like, you know, these uh these up close like extreme close-ups of parts of this camel's body. And I was thinking of just like how weird of an animal a camel really is. Just like it's like kind of like a horse, but like it's a really messed up looking horse. Yeah. Yeah, camels are like super weird. <laughs> and like um, Charles Grodin is like petting it and stuff. And I, I was really struck by the fact that as somebody who's grown up and, you know, like lived with like cats and dogs, you should never pet them against the fur. I noticed that. Yeah, he was petting and... <laughs> it against the grain of the fur. Yeah. And I saw all this like dust coming off of it, which uh, I was like, "Boy, that's a that's probably a very dirty camel." Yeah, but I was just like, 
either it was just a very docile creature or maybe you know for the sake of the film maybe there were some drugs that they gave it to calm it down or for those close-up shots where you don't see the face maybe they just had like fake a fake neck or a fake hump that they shot that was some of the money that they spent on their stars like we need a fake camel for this one shot so that charles (laughs) groden can pet it against the grain no honestly i feel like if they had just paid a lot of money for a good animatronic camel well, I think where he saved a lot of time and money. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Then they could have made that camel with just no eyes. Yeah. You know? Oh my God! They could have just been like, "Oh well, he's blind. We'll put some sunglasses on him." And then like camel would have given them some money for advertising. And, Boom. Yeah. I did notice on the camel, there was a uh, wire attached to the camel. Did you notice that? I don't think I did. So it's it's after it's it's right after we we come to uh, Warren Beatty and he's and Dustin Hoffman runs up to him and he's like what are you doing with this camel and he's like oh I bought it you know it's a blind camel and I, and he's they're leading it through the marketplace right and the, the the joke is the camel's blind so it's stumbling into all these different uh, you know tables and people and knocking stuff over and whatever and I noticed that there was this like little black wire that looked like it was attached to the harness on the other side so like Warren Beatty's holding the the reins. And it's going one direction, and this wire, this little black wire, is attached to it, and it looks like it's going in the other direction. So that when they wanted the camel to swerve, they could just tug on that and make him kind of like you know veer off and hit like a table or something. Which is probably a detail that like you never would have noticed until the advent of like you know HD video, yeah. when you can actually go and be like, oh. Maybe well maybe in the theater you might have seen it, but I was so excited to get this on Blu-ray because this is a film that, because of its reputation, I've always wanted to see, and it wasn't something that really ever showed up on TV that I was aware of, and I never saw it anywhere on VHS or anything. It came out on DVD in like the early two thousands in all regions except for North America. Like, it was released everywhere, but they didn't release it here. And then, um... Was it perhaps a bigger hit overseas? I'm wondering if it was just Hollywood spite? Yeah. People just really like to hate this movie. (laughs) I don't know. Um, and then the Blu-ray was first announced in 2011. And then it kept getting pushed back. And I think it was 2013 that it was finally released. And this actually, what we have available to us today, this is the only version available, really, this Blu-ray. I'm sure somewhere you could get, like, the VHS that was released, like, right after the movie came out or something. But as far as it's, like, readily available for purchase on Amazon or anything like that, uh, this, this version is considered the director's cut, which is two minutes shorter than the theatrical cut. And I don't know what the differences are, hmm. having having never seen that version. Interesting. I wonder if yeah, I have no I have no idea what what that could what that could have been. Yeah. Some some distasteful joke or moment. Or I mean, a lot of comedy involves timing. 
And I'm wondering if maybe, like, the two minutes is just, like, oh, every single joke, there was an extra, like, three seconds or something that was just, like, awkward. I have no idea. Yeah, so maybe we're watching it here in 2017 being like, this movie's great. What were they, you know? And, but then back then, it's like those extra two minutes just, like, bungled every (laughs) joke delivery (laughs) in the entire movie. Yeah, that's really weird. I don't even know what... Yeah, because it's just like two minutes there, and if it's two consecutive minutes, then well, that constitutes a deleted scene. Yeah, and this Blu-ray, unfortunately, as far as special features go, it only has previews, and as is very popular to do these days, not the preview for the film itself. <laughs> yeah, so really, it has no special features. Yeah, just advertisements for other sony products um and it's it's i said this earlier it's like it's always the movies that really need a commentary that don't have one because i'd really love to hear uh i don't know if dustin hoffman warren Beatty, and elaine may would be in the same room for the full movie for that amount of time talking about it um i mean (laughs) i would think that like it today i mean because clearly there's a whole story to this movie yeah outside of like just the making of it and the fallout of it like that's worthy for of at least like a 20 minute behind the scenes featurette (laughs) if they could do a feature-length documentary about the the 90s version of island of dr moreau right it seems like there's a movie in the making of ishtar yeah, for sure. Hell, there's a dramatic feature coming out soon about the making of The Room. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Which looks really good, by the way. Yeah, I, I really want to see that. The, uh, the Disaster Artist. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, Warren Beatty has always defended the film. He's always said that, you know, he's like, Elaine, she wrote a great script, she directed a great movie, and she's great. And I'm proud of what I did in the movie. I'm proud of what Dustin did in the movie and all this stuff. And Dustin Hoffman, he was always on the on the fence to begin with about even taking the role. <laughs> they had to talk him into it. And finally it was basically just like, well, I mean, it's Warren Beatty and Elaine May. She really helped me out with Tootsie. And like, why not? And he just goes off and he does this and it's this huge disaster. <laughs> so he's wanted and... to sort of be like, just put it behind him. Well, actually, he's said in interviews um like somebody was like you know going back would you do it again and he was like yeah because like i mean it looks like he's having a great time well he didn't really have a good time oh really (laughs) no nobody really had a good time making it It, it, it's just in the sense that like it's kind of like warren Beatty having sex with every woman in the world it's like you never know and it's like he wouldn't have wanted to close that door like and it's like i don't know he made a good movie they all made a good movie and it's just, it's been treated very unfairly in the past 30 years. Yeah, you know, I think that, like, if, uh, who's, who put this movie out? Sony, it would be, because it, would, it was Columbia, so this is probably a Sony home video release. Oh, I don't have the case, because Seabiscuit. <laughs> but it should have, it should be printed on the disc, though. Yeah. Yeah, Sony, Columbia Pictures, Sony. I feel like, you know, they, they would have had to have, uh you know invested some money to putting out like a proper fully featured release 
and sort of like showcasing it a bit but it's a movie that i think like deserves a little bit of, of, of showcasing and especially now that like so much time has passed and there is essentially like an entirely new audience yeah who's probably never even heard of the movie um it holds up well yeah but kind of like what you were saying before i mean can you sell a movie to a younger audience about two 50 year old guys going off and doing this thing especially now when like you know to a modern audience doesn't often warren Beatty there stars have sort of come and gone at this point yeah because i mean rules don't apply what the hell happened to that movie <laughs> why weren't there lines around the plot like finally warren is back Well, it gets the uh, the talking movies recommendation. Yeah. Um, it was nice doing and watching another uh, comedy. This is our second in a row after uh, the Nutty Professor. Yeah, but don't get too comfortable. Yeah, what are we watching next episode? We are watching Shoah, the nine-hour Claude Landsman documentary about the Holocaust. My God. No, 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 we're not. <laughs> um. I I do want to watch that movie at some point just to experience it, but that that's not for this. Yeah, there are a few movies like that that are on my to you know to watch list that I'm just like I got to be in the right yeah got to be in the right mood and mindset for it. You know, that's, you can't just throw it on and you know. Yeah. Thank you for not doing that to for, to me today because that's my biggest fear when you're like okay I want to surprise you with something I'm like oh god. This <laughs> is Here's a three-hour movie about an old man fucking a pig. I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if that movie exists. I've never seen Babe. Is that what Babe was? No, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> you had suggested something a while back. I don't remember why or how it came up. About how, um, like, from episode to episode, uh, we'd sort of like link there'd be like links between each movie like oh well this one had this actor so next time we do something with this oh, so we're gonna like do rad character. we will not do rad oh. <laughs> someday if you can if you can track down rad um uh, maybe because i know nothing about this movie aside from what you just told me a few minutes ago yeah that'd be fun that'd definitely be fun to do yeah um maybe we could do that like we did the Ernest scared stupid thing we just a bunch of friends listening or something as we watch the movie yeah that'd be that's definitely the kind of movie to do that for <laughs> Um, but I was thinking, uh, for the next episode, because we just watched a movie that featured the songwriting talents of Paul Williams, mm. maybe next week we could watch the Brian De Palma film Phantom of the Paradise. So, yeah, that, I have never seen it. So, uh, yeah, that, that would be cool. All right. And is this, <laughs> and is this now the start of this, uh, this, this chain? Yeah. I will commit to this. I mean, every now and then, you know, we'll do one of our theme months or something. Mm-hmm. But for the time being, we'll do that. And, and it, you know, we don't have to be too strict right. with yeah. it. You know, yeah. we can... So the, so, the, so the idea is, it's almost like a Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of scenario right. where it's like, okay, so we're watching... <laughs> we're starting the chain with Ishtar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and because Paul Williams wrote songs for the movie, uh, we're going to now pivot to an, another movie that connects to Ishtar through Paul Williams. Yeah, he also is one of the main characters in it, too. So. Yeah. So then from 
after Phantom of the Paradise, that would open us up to another movie with any of the actors that are in it, or another Brian De Palma movie, or another, you know, or whatever, you know. The, the people, the, I don't know, the director of photography, yeah, exactly. somebody who worked on the sets, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, maybe some thematical connection, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll see if, if this is something we want to keep doing by the... <laughs> It's, you know, like anything else on this show, we're just, we'll do it till it gets old and then we'll just do something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, I just wanted to, uh, remind our listeners to check out our Facebook page. And, uh, if you Please have like any us. suggestions for films you want to hear us talk about or any, uh, comments about any of the films we've discussed or comments on any other films or anything like that then uh, you can reach us through our facebook page facebook.com slash talking movies or you can email us at uh, talking movies pod at gmail.com that's t a l k i n m o v i e s p o d at gmail.com very good, Tim. Very good. And uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, then uh, you might want to think about dropping us a rating on iTunes or some other uh, podcasting service like that. Not that we're desperate. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we, we just never mentioned it, so, That's you know. That's true. And, I mean, there are, on a lot of different podcasts, like, with, like, even with like big people like Leonard Malton and stuff like they, they even they say that like please oh every, everybody like, says yeah. it and it's like usually it's just, I don't like to do it because it's just like I don't want a lot of begging you know if people want to go rate things because they really like it like they'll go do it yeah I feel like most people know to do that kind of stuff it's just and I don't want to just be harping on like oh please do this please do that I never have I feel like I should I don't rate things on Netflix either yeah me neither Maybe that's why things I like are often taken down from Netflix, because I'm not supporting them. Like, Netflix and Hulu pretty much, like, got rid of all the old movies. <laughs> well, that, I think with, in, like, Netflix's case, it has less to do with what Netflix wants and more to do what, more to do with what all of the other uh, studios and distributors want. But even the public domain movies are gone. Mm. Which, that was confusing. Because, like, last summer I would go on, like, I was like, oh, I want to like have a movie playing when I go to sleep, but I want it to be just like an old movie I've seen before. And I would just go to Hulu and I would just start up like my man Godfrey or nothing sacred or something like that. You just like a public domain old, like screwball comedy. And then it would start. And then while I was sleeping, it would, you know, it would just start the next movie when it was done. And I'd wake up and like beat the devil would be on with Humphrey Bogart which is also public domain. I'm like, oh, good. I found this great, like, cycle of films to just go through and, like, while I'm sleeping. <laughs> and then a great thing to wake up to. And then they're all they're all gone. Yeah, I would think with a service like Netflix, that would just sort of be like, well, at the very least, you just, you'd take everything and anything you can get, you know, yeah. just to have as much content as you can possibly have. And which would include, like, you know, anything in the public domain, just have it up there. Yeah. But who knows? But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. <laughs>